Welcome to the Data Stack Show. Each week, we explore the world of data by talking to the people shaping its future. You'll learn about new data technology and trends and how data teams and processes are run at top companies. The Data Stack Show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. You can learn more at rudderstack.com. Today, we have a guest who has written content for a while around um, data companies, the data space, and, and major trends in data. And he wrote an article called How to Become the Next $30 Billion Data Company. It talked a lot about open source. It talked about major players in the data space, and it talked about a, a lot of new up-and-coming players in the data space. We'll link to it in the show notes. But Sven has an academic background. He studied mathematics. He has a, a PhD, actually, and then has worked in a variety of data contexts. And so we're just really excited to chat with him. Costas, I think one of the things that I'm interested in is Sven talks a lot about the major players in the data space now, but the fact that they're actually not necessarily going to be the next really, really big data company, which on the heels of Snowflake's IPO feels weird to say, because that was such a monumental event, both in the financial markets and, and in the tech space. But I actually agree with him, and I want to hear from him why he thinks that is. So that's that's what I want to know. How about you? Yeah, absolutely. I think we are going to be discussing about this. I mean, my passion about that stuff anyway, especially when it comes to Snowflake and Databricks. So yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation, actually. Like, that's the main questions that I have. He has like this unique trait of like being, let's say, a person with like a PhD, very technical, but at the same time, like he really enjoys communicating with people out there. He has like a newsletter, he's blogging. So yeah, it would be nice to hear also what drives this passion for communication and expressing his thoughts through these channels. So these are like the things that I would like to chat with him about. Great. Well, let's dig in. Let's do it. All right, Sven, welcome to the show. You have such an interesting background. You have a PhD in a very interesting field in mathematics, but you also work in data day to day. And then you also write a lot about data as an industry and the tooling around it. And so I don't even know how we're going to pack all of the, all the things we want to talk about into one episode, but thanks for joining us. Thank you as well. All right. Well, starting out, can you just give us a little bit of your background? How did you get into the field of data? And then what day-to-day work do you do in data at your, at your job? Uh, yes, of course. So, so how did I get into data? So like, I think like, now, 12 years ago, a friend actually asked me whether I wanted to like explore a problem and like saw, like found a company with him. And it wasn't in the data space. It was just about like actually gathering lots and lots of data and like providing it to a certain customer set. And so that didn't work out because I, <laughs> I found it like different co-founder had different ideas about where the company should go. So we decided to split up. That was my very early introduction to the world of startups and data. But then later on, I did my PhD in singularity theory, which is like this weird little subfield of mathematics. And I also kept working at a, at a marketing agency for like, I don't know, five years. And then I joined, I decided to, to like leave academia and then join as a data scientist and as a developer, and then as a DevOps engineer for a company, like the internal data team. And after I went through all of, of these steps, I decided to actually head into product management and 
became a product owner of an internal data team. And that is where I'm at now. Very cool. And you also, you've been writing on Medium for a while, but you also have a, a newsletter. Do you want to just tell us briefly about your newsletter and maybe where people can sign up? Oh, yes. Just got a Google for like three data point Thursday. That's the newsletter. I started that simply because I didn't feel there are too many good data newsletters out there that take like a holistic perspective. So I decided to like write my own. And yeah, I just write about my kind of special and opinionated perspective on like things that happen. Not like the new stuff, but like I simply collect like interesting stuff I found over the, the years working in the industry. Very cool. And it's a great newsletter. We we are huge fans of it here on our end. And actually reading some of your content for a while, I realized, well, this is great. We should just have him on the show. And I think that's how this whole thing got started. First of all, I want to ask you a kind of a funny question based on your background. So singularity theory and mathematics, you have a PhD. Can you just, two questions on that, just because it's kind of fun to, to hear about people's backgrounds. Could you just briefly explain what that is? And then I'd love to know, are there any lessons that from that study that you still apply in your day-to-day work, working with data on a practical level? Who? That is a good question. Uh, okay, for the, for the first one. So singularity theory is, is asking what, like is studying places where stuff changes suddenly. Like if, if you imagine a function, if like a function has like a little kink and yeah, that's basically it. It just asks like, okay, so how do these things generally look? What happens? Like what happens to all sorts of weird systems that these um, things could describe? So that is singularity theory. So I, I do have one thing I apply quite frequently, but other than that, I, <laughs> I was just going to apply like reply. I don't use anything at all. But one thing is definitely using using examples all day long. So that's like using examples to like play around. Like when I'm, I develop products, I always go very, very iteratively and produce like small little steps and then work my way forward. And that's what I actually learned like in my PhD thesis, like doing little examples and then like trying to find the gen- general picture inside that. Uh, yeah, so it's a, uh, like a workflow and a process that you're applying to just a different practice or different field of study. That's super interesting. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think like the pretty good, uh, like a great engineering professor called Hemming called it napkin calculations. And that's the very same thing I try to apply uh, every single day. Love it. Love and love the concept of, of napkin calculations is great. Well, let's, let's start to dig into the world of data, which you've written about and the subject I want to tackle, and we've touched on this in a previous episode, but Costas, I know in particular, is extremely passionate about the Databricks versus Snowflake conversation. And there's a lot there, both from a business perspective, a data business perspective, there are considerations around open source and, and all sorts of different things. But before we get into that, I really love your perspective on what are the two, what do those two platforms do? Because in one sense, you could say, okay, they're kind of similar, right? They, they both allow you to store and do things with data with a constellation of different tools around that, right? 
but they're pretty different and they're used for, for fairly different things at this point. But just give us, could you give us a quick rundown of what Databricks does? What are the most common use cases? And then what Snowflake does in the most common use cases? Yes. So that is a great question. So let's take this specific perspective first. Like Databricks came out of the, I think like the university spinner basically um, from the Apache Spark guys. And then they layered on like to this massively parallel computing framework. They layered on like the data lake, which allows for asset transactions. And then they slowly added stuff that kind of fits into that context, which was basically like notebooks and they lately added ETL transformations. And the most recent addition actually is like they acquired the company Redash, which I think you also talked about in like another episode. So they actually now also feature a front end. So that is Databricks in, in details. And like Snowflake came out of this hugely cloud data warehouse, which had like a really cool feature, which because it decoupled, I think, like computation from storage. So you, um, you could scale both things independently, which you usually can't do in like a, a cloud data warehouse. Like everything else, actually, you have to scale both things mostly. And then they started layering on stuff like integrations to data integration tools. And now they also have like machine learning stuff and so on. So for me, it is kind of like Databricks comes from the world of unstructured data, whereas Snowflake comes from the world of structured data. And they will simply like converge into one space. But if you, so if you, take, like, if you take like a step back, I think they're actually going to form like a whole new sector of cool companies. Because, so, I mean, if, if you take a look at like what, what do data companies and you're a data company in that sense as well, of course, what do data companies actually do like fundamentally? So my take on this would be they enable customers, companies to derive value from um, their data. I think they have to wrestle with like four forces of data. And so I like to call them the DAX forces, D-A-K-S. One is the sheer amount of data which is growing exponentially as far as my really bad forecast actually <laughs> tells me. So it's like the exponential growth of data. They try to handle that. And you're certainly doing this. And there's the kind of data and the kind of data, which will be then like, say in like 10 years with a growth of data, I think the amount of data we will have is like, will be like oh, 15, 20x of that we have today. But all of this data will be unstructured event data, real-time data, lots of imagery, lots of sensor data. That's, that's the data we will have to deal with in the future. That's the kind of data. Then I did write about that quite a few times. There's the snowflake problem. The snowflake problem is a very simple thing. If you go into any company and take a second company, and compare the data setups, like the different sources, targets, data has to flow from and to, they're gonna match like probably like 80%, but each one will be like their own um, unique snowflake. And then, so it's a snowflake problem. You do, you've got to solve that in some, some way. Any, any company has to solve that problem in some way, any data company. And then the fourth force is kind of the decentralization. And that's like a big thing. Decentralization means one, data is now being emitted in lots and lots and lots of decentralized places. You know? And also has to be used uh, by every single employee in a company and like in a decentralized way. Like if you go into a bookstore, you will very likely pull out your phone and like, like consume data, like for instance, just read like a book critique or like check a price or, and so on. And so there's like decentralized data emission and consumption happening in one place. And now these are four forces. 
what I'm trying to say is like these companies, Snowflake and Databricks, are actually moving into the space that use all that try to like wrestle with all four of these forces. And I don't think there's another company currently that is actually doing that. There's almost no company which is trying to tackle all four of these forces. I think Databricks has a slight edge actually on that because they come from the unstructured world and Snowflake's, Snowflake is not that uh, not yet there. But that's kind of my take on that. They are moving into the space, this really like this new frontier, which I think actually the big IPOs in the data space will happen like the next say five to 10 years. Yeah, it's, it is kind of crazy to think about with Snowflake's IPO, it's crazy to think about another IPO that's bigger in the data space because that one was so high impact. But I agree with you. I think we're at a lot of the things we're going to see are, that are going to have an even bigger impact are still nascent. So Sven, I have a question. I mean, I want to dive deeper into like these differences between the these two platforms. I hear you and you are passionate about like these two tools together, right? So can you tell us a little bit more about like your experience with these tools and what was the moment that you realized that there is these two companies and the, these two products are in a collision trajectory, let's say. And the reason I'm asking is because at the beginning when Snowflake was out there, everyone was thinking that, okay, Snowflake is a data warehouse and the main competition that's going to be between Snowflake is going to, for, for Snowflake is going to be BigQuery, it's going to be Redshift, right? But it seems that like Snowflake had a much bigger uh, vision around that. And suddenly today, or at least like the past, I don't know, like a year or something, it becomes more and more clear that the actual competition is going to be between these two companies, Snowflake and Databricks. So what brought you to this conclusion? And also like before that, what's your experience with these tools? How you've used them and how do you feel about them as products? So this is a great question. So... Um, productively, I actually haven't used uh, any of those tools. I've played around with both of them, and uh, I actually noticed Databricks because they bought Redash. Because <laughs> I was playing around with Redash at, I think, the time they actually bought Redash. It was, it was like a weird co coincidence. And then that was also the point where I realized they are kind of like their master plan, actually, to move into this huge space. And so Databricks was pretty clear in their intent to move things into this, this bigger space. Snowflake, on the other hand, is like a weird thing because as, you, as, as, you, as you're saying, like there are good alternatives for cloud data warehouses out there. I mean, Redshift took the, uh, took the market by storm, right? It's, the weird thing is that even though I do that, um, Snowflake kept coming up as like the default choice for lots and lots and lots of companies and teams and simply kept growing. So. Sometime I just had to check them out and I realized, ah, they're actually moving into a very different direction. Actually, uh, amazingly, they have an amazingly well-designed product that is able to not just compete, like to actually beat Redshift and BigQuery in their markets in some way, because they, they're able to differentiate themselves, even with these huge players and their resources. And they also are adding lots and lots and lots of stuff um, in a very, uh, well, simple and easy way to their product. Which, by the way, like the cloud, the hyperclouds uh, don't do. They, for some reason, tend to make stuff a little bit more complicated. So that's my experience so far. Yeah, yeah, makes total sense. Actually, I find these companies very interesting because, in a way, it's like they started from the completely, completely opposite starting points, right? Like, yeah. as you said, like you have the academic background, 
of Databricks, right? You have like a bunch of geeks in Berkeley trying to redefine Hadoop and MapReduce and come up with a new processing architecture and they come up with data i mean not with databricks but with spark and then on spark they build like the, this this company today and on the other hand you have snowflake where you have a bunch of people coming from oracle which is the exact opposite like it's the definition of the corporate environment right yeah <laughs> and uh they're like, okay, there's something wrong in the industry, which means that there is an opportunity. Let's go and build like a really nice technology. And they started, I, I, if I remember correctly, I think they started with the data warehouse and the main like concept around what was different in their case was this separation between processing and storage, right? Which was an amazing also marketing material let's say i think they made a lot of noise around that and like people started thinking of oh this sounds cool like it sounds something good i paid i can store my data and i pay a different price for that and blah 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 and all these things and i'm processing but i have a question for you because you're also like a deeply technical person don't you think yeah. that this separation already existed in a way right like databricks or spark didn't store the data. It assumed that the data was on distributed file system like HDFS, right? That was the beginning. And that was like also how Hadoop worked, right? So, okay, of course, we are talking about not a cloud solution. We are talking about like um, on-prem, let's say, installation. But my feeling at least, and I want your opinion on that because I might be wrong, yeah. Uh, is that this separation actually already existed. It's not like, it, it was just that like nobody actually talked about it that much outside of like the hardcore engineers that were doing the work, right? Oh, yes. But I mean, I mean so it's kind of like the debate about self-driving cars. So um, I keep on telling people like um, the technology for self-driving cars is already there. Like drive, cars can already drive um, by themselves. But the, the technical stuff isn't figured out that much, like, like, like yet. So... So almost anything is already there. I mean, that's like the stuff that technology already has invented is, is, is mind-blowing. So <laughs> the hard part, I don't think is actually inventing something new. It's kind of like making it easily accessible and maybe just wrapping it nicely. I think that's actually the hard part. Not so much about the invention. It's more about like letting other people um, in on the invention. And I think Snowflake does an amazingly well job at exactly that part. Yeah, yeah. I agree with what you are saying. And I think this is where we have to uh, think marketing. And Eric, that's big part of what the value of marketing brings in this world that educates and re-educates people around the products out there. So thank you so much about that. But I think that on, from the technical perspectives, then, I think what was really uh, impressive with, with Snowflake at the beginning is that not only we had this separation, right? But at the same time, we had a very complex infrastructure that nobody had to actually manage, right? And that was like, at least at the beginning, mm -hmm. I think like a yeah. huge difference between Databricks and, and Snowflake. Because with Databricks, I mean, okay, today they also have like a cloud offering, which is like self-served, but back then, working and setting up and operationalizing Spark, I don't think that was the easiest thing to do, right? <laughs> Ew, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's like, but actually like a buscular for, for most companies. Like I, I know uh, from first-hand experience, 
running and deploying actually most open source tools today, it's it's a pain in the ass. It's, it's like uh, almost any tool, I would rather have like a hosted solution. So that's definitely true, that point. So I, you just touched on that, like, because like Snowflake came out of this um, structured space. Actually, I think they they must have realized that they're in this like structured data space and that if got to move out of that because like my personal take as, as far as my forecast for the next 10 years goes like in 10 years i think structured data database for structured data um, will have no customer base anymore well at least like just a very little one so i think all of these companies actually have to move out of the space or at least like amend their offering as much as that is not going to be like the core anymore yeah, yeah, makes sense, makes sense. Although I have to, I have to add something here about like the structured data. I remember when when Snowflake came out, and because back then like BigQuery wasn't that big, right? Like the main competition and the main like let's say data warehouse in the space was actually Redshift. And one of the biggest problems that you had with Redshift is that Redshift was exactly as you say, like it was completely structured it was like a database you had your tables you had your relations you had your columns very well defined data types blah 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 blah. one of the selling points early selling points of uh, snowflake was that they had an amazingly good support for semi-structured data and when they said semi-structured data they actually meant json so, and I think also XML, but anyway, I don't know who was working with XML, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> and they still have that, the, but okay, after a while also BigQuery came and like BigQuery was, they really had like a very good support for nested data structures and stuff like that. So it was a very natural fit for JSON files. But and the reason that I'm saying that is because I want to ask you, when you say structured versus unstructured, what do you mean? Like, wh- what in your mind is the unstructured data that Databricks was excelling in working with? <laughs> so that is a good question. Um, of course, I presume it's the same. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if, you, if you say that like that. But by the way, I mean, Redshift is, uh, is based on, on Postgres, I think, as far mm-hmm. as I know. So and Postgres has amazing JSON support as well. So I presume, again, like Snowflake versus and XML, by the way, as well. So I presume like Snowflake and Redshift didn't actually had, had probably feature parity and like support for the semi-structured uh, data. And of course, I mean that. I mean, I mean, I mean data that comes in like some kind of like big blob. And yes, I also mean like uh, objects, like images and videos. And because the reason I'm saying that is like in the future, we will have lots and lots of data from decentralized spaces, which simply means they come in different forms. It doesn't mean like they're actually unstructured. It just means like I might not know the structure or I maybe have to deal with lots and lots and lots of different structures and I might as well treat them as unstructured. That's actually the point. That's actually the point. The true question is more like not do I have like a database that actually supports like dumping all the stuff in there and maybe like dump, I mean, Snowflake actually, I think like has like some some kind of table extensions now which go to, to S3. So maybe in the future they will also support like images. They may already do so. The question is more like, what do we do with this kind of data? How do I work with it? And how do I, I mean, like, how do I like search through stuff and, and all these kinds of things? Yeah, yeah, makes a lot of sense. And I think that's like, a, if we um, see also 
How, I mean, from again, from a product perspective, like if we see the two companies, the use cases and the actual, like, let's say workloads that they were working at the beginning were like quite different, right? You had uh, Snowflake on one hand, that was like a more traditional BI workload. So yeah, like people wanted like to put structured data up there and like do BI and see like, how is my company performing? Like that kind of stuff. And on the other hand, you had... Databricks, which if I remember correctly, one of the most important first use cases about Databricks was actually ETL. You, you would see like many times using actually a data warehouse together with, with Spark. So Spark was used for ETLing data, especially like when you had very unstructured data, as you mentioned, Sven. And of course, there was a mail. Like one of the main like use cases after a while about Spark was, okay, let's train models. Okay, let's do statistical analysis. Let's do like things that don't naturally fit on the SQL dialect of a data warehouse, right? And of course, this gap is closing right now and we can discuss more about this later, about the two. But yeah, and that's like a testament of the type of data that Spark can work. You can have unstructured data. You can work with text. You can work with CSV files. You can work with video files or like binary files and stuff like that. Things that, yeah, okay. I mean, data warehouse or database might have like a binary blob that is supported there, but yeah, okay, that's it. Like, it's not like you are going to train like a sophisticated model on top of that. That's also reflected on like the tools that they were supporting, right? How you can work with Spark through Pandas. You would see the difference between also the people that were using it, right? Like you would see the data scientists versus like the analysts and like each one of these categories, like they have different tools and these products and these solutions and technologies were also accommodating like these different, different solutions. But do you see this uh, as been like changing lately? Do you see that Databricks, for example, being used more for analytical purposes, let's say, and not just like this kind of sophisticated ML payloads and on the other hand see or anticipate that like snowflake might try or do already more of like the ml and data science related payloads because in this case we are talking about also they need different features that they might not have and they have to introduce yeah sure so on the snowflake side i'm actually not sure i don't know the like recent product development that well i can just imagine that actually the the analytical background Snowflake has might actually be like 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 a problem there because they they still gotta keep this customer base and not like dilute this this customer base uh, while moving into this new space. I mean, it's, it's a challenge that can be overcome. On the data break side, I'm not so sure as well. <laughs> so obviously they're trying to move into into the analytical because they let's see. So they get um. They got these new feature areas, which is the, the, the Delta Life tools, I think, which are basically like models that you can put into Databricks in a very easy way, and by the way, also in, in SQL. And you got like the, you know, the Redash integration, which means you can actually type like SQL right into like a query editor. And then, so you can, you can do quite a bit of what, what like analytical workloads that other companies would run on Snowflake. You can put that into, into Databricks. But they're not like they're not quite there yet because they have to like carry on the the, the data engineering and like the, the data science and uh, like all of these guys because they they still have 
live in this notebook world, in this Apache cluster world. They have like, for instance, they, they do have support for dbt, for instance. Um, but they're like, like they're slow to move into that direction. And I think like paradoxically, like Snowflake is slow to move into the machine learning and the data science direction. So it's um, actually an interesting play uh, to watch. I have a question for both of you. So Sven, you mentioned, and if you could give us just a quick review on these four major forces that are driving, that are going to be drivers of the new category of companies that we see. If you could give us a quick review of those, and then I'm interested to know which one you think will drive the first wave, just as far as the, the problems that it's going to create or the pain points that it's going to create that then this next wave of data companies will solve. Because, and the 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 reason I'm I'm asking and would love your thought on that too, Costas. The reason I'm asking is the available technology dictates the behavior of an organization, right? So if you come from the analytical, if you're if you're using uh, Snowflake and you come from the analytical structured data background, you align your processes to match that, right? And then technology changes, but organizational change is pretty hard, right? Because you've done things and built your processes and data flows and pipelines and teams around an infrastructure that's more focused on structured data. So I'm just interested to know which of the forces, the four forces that you mentioned, do you think are going to create the first wave of organizational change that responds to the technological change? That's a great question. So to recap, um, the four forces or like dragons that have to be tamed, the decentralization of data, the amount of data, the exponentially growing amount of data, the kind of data, so structured, real-time, event-based data, and the snowflake problem, the AKS. These are the four dragons I'm talking about. And I have no idea. <laughs> so I, I feel like they're actually all four equally important and all have to be solved for. I see a lot of companies just focusing on the amount and on like and like the growing mm. amount and like a specific kind of data. But I also see like the decentralization movement that is actually happening. Like there's like the pattern of the data mesh emerging, which is about decentralizing data usage and production. Sure. So I feel like all of them will kind of hit all of us. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Actually, I think that, I don't think that's like, in my opinion, at least, I don't think that it's the nature of the data that is going like to, to drive this mainly because before you start dealing with a problem you don't really know like what kind of these dimensions of the data are going to affect you more and i totally agree with Sven pretty much all of them are relevant probably some of them are more important in some cases than others and i will give like a very easy example here to explain what i mean if you take a b2c and a b2b company the one of the most obvious differences there when dealing with data is volume right? Like a B2C company has from almost day one, many, 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 many more data compared like to what a B2B company can have even when they reach a billion dollar valuation or whatever. On the other hand, what you have with a B2B company, you have the decentralization because data is suddenly like siloed in so many different tools and somehow like you need to access all this data and you have the complexity of the data. Like Salesforce alone, like the default setup of Salesforce comes out with, if you try like to pull the data out of there, you have probably, I don't know, like 250, 300 tables, right? 
And that's the bare minimum. Do you need all of them? I don't know, but they are there, right? And I've seen like companies, especially when they have more applications like installed on top of like their SFDC, you can have easily like 800, 900 tables. Okay, that's like a huge, huge complexity, even if like the volume is low. So what I would say is that in my opinion, what is going to happen and what we are going to see is that there are going to be uh, business reasons that they are going to push the companies into trying to figure out opportunities to create value from themselves because of the data that they have. And as they will start trying to do that, either by doing like more sophisticated analytics or more complete analytics or start doing predictive analytics, right? They will get at the point where they'll be like, mm, okay, my data looks like this, so I need a solution that I can accommodate that. And these things, like, of course, are going to change, right? Now, I think the industry is still learning. So all these best practices around what you need if you come from this space or the other space, I think they are still under definition, as also the technologies are. I think what is important for Snowflake and Databricks is how they can create platforms that they can accommodate potentially all the different use cases. So when they land inside the company for one use case, then they have opportunities to expand. Because both mm. of these solutions, they take a lot of investment from a company to start using them, right? So they are very sticky. Super interesting. Okay, f follow-up question for both of you based on that. Because, I mean, we don't know which of the four dragons are going to have industry-wide impact. And I'm sure, depending on the business and the volume and the type of data, different individual companies will, will probably face them at different points. But let's say, well, well, this question is, I think, interesting, just based on a lot of examples that I've thought about recently of companies who have a core competency more on the Databricks side and are moving towards the structured data side and then the other way around. We have a core competency on the analytics side, and then you want to move more into the Databricks, machine learning, data science side. Is Do you think that moving one direction to the other is easier? Is there going from one side to the other or vice versa is easier? Oh, that's an, that is also a good question. Um, <laughs> um, if you look at the both of the, these companies, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, they're both trying and just based on their experience. And I think these two companies are actually experts in these two moves. They both seem to have trouble. So I think these are both hard moves. What would be my take on that? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I would say that what Databricks is trying to do is much more ambitious and harder. Now, if they manage to do it, I think it's going to be like an amazing feat. And I'll explain why. By the way, before I explain why it's harder for Databricks, I'll talk about our friends at Snowflake. Snowflake, like recently, they launched a product called Snowpark or something like that. I don't remember exactly like the name, but it's like uh, they are playing a little bit with the Spark as name. And actually, it's a very competitive product to Spark. So they are adding this kind of functionality there. They are adding they want to support ML use cases, they want to allow users to build much more, let's say, sophisticated business logic on top of the data engine that they have. Okay, so they do that, like they're moving into like the space of Databricks and they do it fast. And if there's one thing that like nobody can deny about Snowflake is their execution, like their execution, like they, they are 
extremely efficient like executing, okay? Now, what's on the other side our friends at Databricks are trying to do is that, yeah, they started like with a processing, with a distributed processing engine, right? And, and that's very good when you want to process data in the way that you usually do with like in machine learning, where you have all your data there, you know exactly what kind of processing you want to do, and you want to scale that right? Because you have a lot of data, for example, or because like the computations that you are doing are like so complex that it has to be scaled like more than one machine. So they have that. Now, what they are trying to do, and this is, let's say, the promise of Delta Lake or the lake house, as they call it, they try to take the concept of the data lake and add some of the stuff that that are very uh, core to a data warehouse, like acid guarantees, right? Or transactions. You don't have transactions in Spark. Like initially you didn't have, you didn't need transactions because I'm not going, like when you're using like a system like Spark, you don't have one user that's going to compete with another user in accessing like state and changing the state, right? So, but, if you want to do analytics, if you want to do like a typical like data warehouse payload and workloads, you need to have that. And they try to build this on top of the architecture of a data lake. Now, if they manage to do that, what they are going to do at the end is they are pretty much going to figure out a way to take a database system and turn it inside out, actually, which it's quite a fit, like if they do it <laughs> technically. Keep in mind like that building databases and ensuring all these guarantees that the database needs, it's not a simple task, right? Databases are like extremely complex systems, especially when we are talking about distributed databases. Of course, we have some of the smartest people in the industry doing that. It's like the good thing of like having a company that it started from a bunch of geeks from Berkeley. So... We'll see. It would be amazing if they managed to do that because they are yeah. going to change, I think, completely the way that we work and build databases. So it's going to be like a huge paradigm shift if they do that. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And when I think about this just on a, a very practical level without necessarily considering the technology, but considering the day-to-day progression that we see in companies, one thing that I've noticed over the past several years is that getting your analytics to a good place generally is a catalyst for machine learning projects because you, when you have enough data in a clean state where you start to derive insights, that's a fertile environment for machine learning to accelerate lots of different projects. So as companies grow and get more data, when you have to be at a certain scale for machine learning to add a ton of value to your organization. So I think it'll be really interesting to see, but if you think about that from Snowflake standpoint, maybe, maybe Databricks from a technology standpoint comes after Snowflake more quickly, but Snowflake may have a user base that they can pull into the machine learning world because they have a fertile foundation for it. All right, we are actually pretty, we're actually pretty close, pretty close to the end of the show. But let's let's hit one more subject. This has been an awesome conversation. I want to hit one more subject. And Sven, you have written a lot about open source, and yeah. so 
One topic that I'd love to hear you expound on is we and and the background behind this question is you've written a lot about open business models, which we probably need to just do a show on that alone because that's a fascinating topic. And you've recently written about pricing and open source business models. But I, I kind of want to do the same thing we did with the with the Databricks versus Snowflake conversation, where we start at the very beginning. And I think you would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, when you think about open source business models, you have to ask the question, what is a successful open source project? And then you can talk about how that feeds into a business model. So talk us through what, what is a successful open source project and what are the characteristics of that? Again, excellent question, because I actually, <laughs> I do have a blog post I'm currently writing and I actually do have like around like 300 blog posts, which I haven't published yet. And that might be another one, but like, so the open source industry is actually really young. I mean, the open source, that's that's been around for like, like 20, 25 years, something like that. And the idea of open source and like actual, I think like GitHub launched in 2008, something like that. So what's an, what's, what's a successful open source project and just to remind you the the usual research says like around about 98 percent of open source projects fail okay so it actually went up from like 90 like four years ago to 98 percent so i think like there's some kind of like three dimensional like three tier model to open source projects and the very first dimension is when when you work in your like project like your one repository or multiple repositories and you basically try to expand the project and get others involved. And then, like, what do you want to do? I mean, you would want to get other developers to, first of all, use your cool new tool and then to contribute to your new, cool new tool. And then success in that dimension simply means, like, lots of people using it and lots of people contributing to it. So that, that's easy. I mean, you make it really easy to use and to deploy and really easy to contribute like, by providing whatever, like, is SDK, CDK, making it easy to set up the test environment and so on. But that's just the very first dimension. And so WordPress and the company Automatic actually started out that right that way. And they worked like for two to three years, they worked on just like the WordPress core, which has been a fork in that beginning. And then they realized, okay, so we need like we need a second, we need a second um, dimension, which is that of what I call like guided extension. That's the space where you start to add like modules, plugins, extensions, like the ability for others to customize your project into in, in their own way. So then you get like a little bit of explosion of repositories actually, which you don't own anymore. But actually that can be like a scary thought, like the stuff you don't own anymore, but your but success in that dimension, and you can only get to like, you have to get a certain level of success in dimension one before you can start working on that success in dimension two. So WordPress did that in, I think like 2004 or five, and they introduced plugins. Success there means like make, making really easy for people to um, to extend stuff, like to add to add plugins, like in plugin SDK kit. You would need something like that. But then around the second dimension, you actually also want to tr- start to create like an ecosystem. Like you actually want to have companies that sell themes. You want to have like a company that's a WordPress example. You want to have like a company that actually sells plugins because these companies are core contributors and they have a business incentive to contribute to your project and make it success- successful. 
that's what WordPress did. And that's, I think at the end of 2000 and something like eight, they hit like um, just working on these two dimensions, like 12% adoption across the CMS space. It meant like in 2008, like 12% of the web wide world was powered by um, WordPress, which already is like an amazing feat. And then they must have realized <laughs> somewhere along, along the way, they actually need a third dimension. And the third dimension is like, once you hit that space, the one of guided extension, you actually don't go into the third dimension. It just happens. It's uh, that one of unguided extension. And for WordPress, that happened in 2011 with the appearance of e-commerce sites based on, based on WordPress. That's the space where they thought it's a blog and then they thought it's a static website. And then they realized, oh no, um, actually people are starting to use our thingy and build something completely new out of it. So like WooCommerce, for instance, emerged in that space. And that is the part, which is this, I think the scariest part for most open source projects because only like a level, I think like a dimension three open source project is only is, uh, is the only true, really successful project. That actually means helping others build their own thingy out of your project. So that for WordPress meant like enabling others to actually build their own WordPress just targeted at um, e-commerce, for instance. And they then reconciled that with like their business incentive and that uh, in the way that they simply bought the company. Okay, so <laughs> that's a way to deal with that. So that is what I think is like a really successful open source project. And by the way, that took them like 15 years to get to that space and other projects as well. Like if you think about Linux or MySQL and so on. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I love the way that you've that you've consolidated a lot of different components into a very concise set of, of characteristics. One question I have though, and this is, it just really struck me that the failure rate for open source projects has increased and now is just incredibly high. And then also using the example of WordPress. And one thing that struck me was that a lot of open source projects are fairly limited in scope. Whereas the examples you gave around MySQL or Linux or WordPress, the total addressable market for what the foundational um, technology enables, right? So if you think about a CMS, the World Wide Web is expanding at an unbelievable rate. The number of websites are as well, exponential growth. And so you've had this limited potential for growth of a, a CMS product for web content. Do you think that's, is there some sort of threshold, even if we don't, can't define it exactly for how large the total addressable problem is for an open source project to be successful? Not at all. But, but I mean, uh, the example is great of WordPress because they grew into that market. In 2004, they were probably targeting market size of, they were just doing blogging and that was probably like a thousand blogs worldwide. Maybe like... Um, that's too low, but it's still, it's like a super small size. And then they extended it to the static site market, which was small at the time. So, I mean, they kind of found their way and like built these mm. extensible things on top of that. So I don't think so. It depends on the project. And I think like every project can find its way. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And that's a, a really good reminder that it really was blog focused at the beginning. And it, and actually, I mean, really, in many ways, the community forged it into a, a more comprehensive, flexible CMS. And I mean, even user accounts now and all sorts of stuff that 
we're way beyond the initial scope of blogging, which is, I think, just a really great answer. Well, Sven, we are, we are at time here. So many more questions to ask you about open source, but this has been a really fun conversation. And I hope uh, that our listeners have really enjoyed thinking through some of these big market shifts with us. And uh, we'd love to have you back on the show sometime again to pick back up the open source conversation. Sure. I'd love to do the follow-up. Thank you guys for inviting me. What a fun conversation. Anytime that I can ask questions that I feel like elicit strong opinions from both our guest and you, Costas, <laughs> I feel like I've had a great day. Uh, a great, <laughs> I feel like I've had a really great day and I think I accomplished that. So thank you for that. I think my big takeaway, I mean, there were so many things about Databricks versus Snowflake, but I really was caught off guard, I think, by the statistics around open source that Sven shared, the failure rate of open source projects, which is just really interesting to me because he's studied the open source space a lot. He studied open source data companies. And his bet is that the next round of really big data companies will have open source foundations, yet the failure rate of open source projects has been increasing. And so that just is giving, it's going to give me a lot to think about this week. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. Actually, open source as a phenomenon in general, I think it's something that we should discuss more about it on this show. Outside of like the failure that Sven talked a lot about, there's another like characteristic and that has to do with abuse. Like it's very common for people out there who are maintaining repos, open source and like pretty popular ones that at some point they quit because of all the abuse that they have to go through from all the people who are just asking and demanding like new features and stuff like that. It's it's actually open source a very, very interesting area of seeing some very interesting, both on like, let's say the best and the worst of the human nature in a way. And yeah, that would be very interesting like, to discuss more about this. And I agree with him that we are going to see more and more big companies that the foundations are on open source. And that has to do with the type of the industry and the type of the problems and the complexity of the problems around data. And what are also the competitive advantages in these products compared to a SaaS solution, for example. So yeah, and we're just at the beginning, by the way. I mean, Snowflake and Databricks, just like the first players in this space. So we have sure. a lot to see in the future. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a really exciting decade. Well, thank you again to everyone who joined us on the show. Lots of exciting guests coming up this fall. We'll do a season wrap up here pretty soon for season two. And until next time, we will catch you later. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Data Stack Show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get notified about new episodes every week. We'd also love your feedback. You can email me, Eric Dodds, at eric at datastackshow.com. That's E-R-I-C at datastackshow.com. The show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. Learn how to build a CDP on your data warehouse at rudderstack.com.